Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. And uh, this week, we have a guest who's going to uh, give us all the wisdom we need to know about something that is on everybody's mind who has uh, school-aged children. And uh, that guest would be Eric Davis, who is the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. And there has been a lot written, a lot said, and a lot of interviews about uh, setting up uh, the return to the classroom and the return and the reopening of the school system. So, Eric, it's a delight to have you with us. And uh, the first question I'm going to ask is, when you were elected to the State Board of Education as its chairman in September 18, uh, 2018, did you think you were going to be handling this kind of a crisis? Oh, never. None of us uh, anticipated um, well, the situation we're in now. But, uh, you know, uh, Don, it just strikes me that um, no generation of North Carolinians ever have had the opportunity to choose the situation that they get to contribute to our state, but we all get to choose how we respond to whatever the situation is. And I just take great faith in our fellow North Carolinians and those who come before us that have shown the way about how to deal with situations like this. So uh, despite all that's going on, I'm pretty optimistic. Well, you know, North Carolina has always been a state that uh, when we have a problem, we usually uh, solve it. Sometimes we're a little slower, but sometimes that's not so uh, so bad to be just a little bit behind the curve and to learn from the uh, the uh, experiences of others. Uh, I, I think uh, overall, I, I think North Carolina has handled this whole crisis a little bit better than most states. Uh, I think we're all learning. But uh, nowhere is it uh, uh, do we have more questions than in, in the school system because we have thousands of uh, students, we have teachers, we have uh, administrators, and uh, of course, uh, so and we have a lot of advice from educators, uh, not only in the state of North Carolina but nationwide, and they all talk about how important it is to have a classroom experience, and yet we all know that. Uh, uh, this is how this uh, coronavirus is uh, is spread is by personal contact. So let's just sort of talk about where you think at the present time uh, the overall general policy is going to be about the uh, return to the classroom and return to opening of the schools. Sure. Well, Don, I'll, I'll share with you that um, my colleagues and I are um, – are have a variety of perspectives on how we should reopen our schools and i think that variety uh, really reflects the constituents that we serve in that there's many who would argue that uh, the prudent thing is just to continue with remote instruction others that would say oh gosh we got to get every kid back in the classroom and then others that would be somewhere in the middle and so on one hand i think that does reflect the um, the opinions across our state, but I'll, I'll share with you that one thing that we are certainly united on is the uh, commitment that our students learn best and our teachers teach best in safe North Carolina public schools. And so the end objective that we're all focused on is how can we get all of our students back into our schools safely, teachers back into our schools safely, and other staff. Um, as soon as possible. Um, I think the path that we're on is a careful, measured, and uh, 
And in some ways, um, some would say too slow, others would say too fast, but it's a measured approach to balance the, uh, the risk of children being in school and the risk of children not being in school. And um, um, I want to commend our superintendents across the state, our principals and teachers that have been working on this and now are, are working even more. Even those across, the, the, including all of those who have differences of opinion, I think that's a, it's healthy that we have that difference of opinion. I think what this um, pandemic has clearly done is it has exposed the inequities and the gaps in our education system across our state. Um, those who tend to be best served by the system, those who are best resourced, those who have, for instance, broadband connectivity and, and those types of supports have done the best at working through this crisis so far. And then those who don't have broadband or don't have reliable access or who don't have health care and the other critical elements of a healthy individual in a healthy community have felt the worst effects of this pandemic. And so uh, not only are we uh, determined to get our students back in school, but uh, as a board, we're also determined to close those gaps, to advocate for our students, to to obtain from North Carolina's resources as well as our nation's the uh, the supports that our students need from an academic, uh, social, emotional, and health uh, well-being, and in doing so, also to care for our teachers and staff as our frontline, face-to-face, everyday caring for our students, professionals that make the difference in public education. Well, we had sort of an abrupt uh, closing of the school system last year as far as the classroom attendance, and yet uh, uh, we finished the term. What did we learn during that experience that's going to help you this fall? Well, the uh, first thing we learned is, is what I just mentioned, is that the, how egregious the gaps are between our ability uh, to reach all of our students and the, and the, the, the fact that we need to reach them. Uh, so much more effectively. So um, I think in short order, we learned um, some ways to try to close those gaps. We, uh, I commend our teachers and principals for quickly developing more um, virtual um, teaching methods and teaching materials. Uh, commend our staff at DPI for doing so. Um, we also learned that it takes a courageous effort to continue to feed our children who are not able to, when they're not able to come to school, but are still reliant on, on um, our school system for nutritious meals. Um, so we, we learned a lot and we, and we have much more to learn. In fact, I was reflecting the other day on just how much we've learned about this virus since March uh, up until today. And I, I think that makes us better equipped to gradually, carefully, and slowly reopen our schools. But it's also our chance to demonstrate to our children how we learn and how we're students as well in continuing to, uh, to discover uh, new knowledge and, uh, and apply that knowledge in a way that uh, furthers their education. So basically right now, it seems uh, that the policy is that uh, 
you're basically leaving the hard uh, decisions and the uh, instructions of how to reopen schools to the local school systems because every situation is so different. Well, in this in this regard, um, as I mentioned before, it is a balance of the risk of being in school with not being in school, but it's also a balance of uh, strike a balance of consistency across the state with flexibility at the local level, and that's a constant um, item of of debate and of thought within our public education system, you know, at a, at a state level, what was determined is that our state had not, had, we've not made enough progress in controlling the spread of the virus in order to be able to go full all students into schools. And yet we're at a point in many places across our state where some students could come back into our schools. So at a state level, we elected to choose which rightfully so is the most difficult of the three options, the uh, hybrid option of a mix of in-person and, and virtual instruction, um, in order, one, to address the, the variety of conditions that, that are across our state, to try to maximize the number of students we could safely, carefully get into our schools, but also provide local districts who may have uh, more egregious circumstances in terms of the virus, the option to go even slower and to start with um, uh, virtual instruction. And so what we're seeing is exactly that. Districts across the state are now making decisions, thoughtful superintendents and local boards of education, listening to their teachers and their constituents and are making decisions about whether to open immediately in a hybrid mode or to um, to open in a virtual mode, and, you, and you'll see a number of different uh, variations of that, which is commendable among our, our local district leadership for recognizing, for instance, that students need to come in for a couple days to get oriented to new teachers and new curriculum and new materials before they start virtual instruction, and then they would, will go for some period of time virtually before hopefully we will we will gain greater control of the spread of this virus, and then they can move to plan B. Others are in the position to already start in, in plan B. So um, uh, again, our objective is to get all our students back into school, but it's prudent to allow local districts to have that discretion um, in determining what's the most appropriate course for their students and teachers. We've got about one minute left in this segment, so I've got time for one quick question. And so, uh, basically, uh, the uh, teachers uh, have a lot of decisions to make as well. What feedback are you getting from them? And we have about 30 seconds. Sure. It's across the spectrum. Uh, many teachers are incredibly energized to get back with their students and, and in their classrooms. They miss seeing their students and, and they're anxious to do so. Others are quite concerned about the, uh, the health conditions and their ability to control the the uh, virus within our schools and so we're doing everything we can to equip all teachers and students with those protective equipment. Our guest is Eric Davis. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education and we'll be back and talk more about the the uh, challenges that face our, our K-12 through education system in the state of North Carolina when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers.
One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, a very timely guest, is Eric Davis, who is the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. And we're talking about the reopening of the North Carolina K-12 school system. Uh, I might mention that uh, Eric uh, is... Uh, in his first term as chair of the board. He comes from the uh, experience of having served on the Charlotte Mecklenburg uh, Board of Education and uh, uh, went to uh, the statewide board and first served as vice chair from April to September of 2018. And then somehow or another, they talked him into accepting the role of chairman. I've been on these boards before, Eric, and I know from my experience as a trustee of one of the universities, is that uh, there's a great deal of difference between being a board member and being the chairman. Uh, there's a lot more responsibility on your shoulders. Uh, and uh, I, as we said earlier, I'm, I'm sure when you accepted this role, you were not anticipating COVID-19. Um, so uh, we, we thank you so much for your service and that of all the board uh, of education. You know, I, I'm hearing a lot more these days about the concern of educators about the social and emotional state of students who are homebound and who are uh, taking most of their educational instruction by the virtual means. Uh, that has to be a major concern. It certainly is. Um, the um, You know, our schools and our teachers do a great job of educating our students, the academics, the, the, uh, what we expect from our education system, but they also provide just an incredible degree of care and support for our students of all ages, of all demographics, of all socioeconomic levels. Um, all of us can recount the teacher who made a tremendous difference in our lives, and that's no less today. And so when students are not able to come to our schools and come to that um, supportive environment that our teachers create. Uh, they they miss a great deal, and 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 some much more than others. We know that for many of our students, the um, 
the relationship with their teachers is one of the most um, impactful one in their lives and on a day-to-day basis helps them overcome whatever challenges they may face outside of school. And, um, and that's also a, a, a really important reason why the student support services positions of nurses and counselors, social workers, um, and so forth are so important to this successful education of our students. And currently, um, our state is woefully behind in, in just getting to that to a national average. And uh, that's one of the things we've advocated for in terms of to get to the national average, just in terms of the number of, of professionals we have in our schools um, that uh, on a per student basis, so we can better serve our, our students and support them and equip them. And it's an important part of the education of our children to be able to support them socially, emotionally, and, and, and in the physical health as, and mental health as well. One of the things that's interesting, I, I spent a, a number of my years uh, in Laurenburg, North Carolina, in Scotland County, and uh, it's interesting how in the, the smaller counties especially, where there's one or two or maybe even as few, as many as four high schools, that the community life revolves around high schools. And so much of that uh, is uh, Friday night football. So uh, athletics and the return of athletics is, a, is another uh, issue that everyone is very interested in. What do you see happening there and how are we going to uh, uh, stage that return? Well, that's one of the areas of our, education system where you see the most passion and spirit and rightfully so um i know just in my own experience that was a, such an important part of learning teamwork and leadership and committing to a cause bigger than yourself is being a member of a team and um and i'm so appreciative of the north carolina high school athletic association and our coaches and others who support our students in, in these endeavors um Unfortunately, the COVID has affected uh, that part of our education system, just like every other part. And while we have received health guidance that would enable certain activities and sports that have limited uh, interaction and and person-to-person contact to continue to move forward, um, football is one that doesn't fit that category. And so it's it's in a period of delay Um, as an avid Friday, Saturday, Sunday, football fan myself. I'm anxious to get back to uh, having uh, having that, seeing those young players on the field and and being able to cheer our local team on. But at this point, uh, we just have to face the reality of the, the protection of our students is uh, too too important to continue those activities. Well, you know, it, it was so sad to me that the high school students this year, especially the seniors, were deprived of their graduation exercises because that's such a, an important aspect of growing up and uh, it's a family experience and so forth. Um, so uh, is there any move to uh, go back and recognize those high school seniors from last year? And also looking ahead this year, what do you think uh, – uh, we will do as far as things like uh, junior senior banquets and things of this nature. Yeah, I can personally relate to the, um, to frankly, the disappointment of not being able to see my child graduate this past May. 
Um, and so I can so relate. Um, I mean, that's such a culmination for students and parents. And I think sec only, uh, second only to how our teachers feel so strongly about those types of graduation ceremonies. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. Um, I want to commend so many of our principals. Um, lift up one, uh, the principal of the year, Tabari Wallace, who made it a point to um, go visit his seniors and in a social distancing way, present their diplomas. Uh, I think many principals were very creative at creating graduation ceremonies that, of course, weren't what we were used to, but they, they did pay honor and celebration to our graduating seniors. And so I suspect if, if we're in a similar situation this spring, we'll, we'll do something similar. But here's my, my best thought on how to avoid that again, is if we are, want to see graduations in the spring and we want to go to football games, we want our kids in school, the best thing we can do is slow the spread of this virus by wearing masks, staying six feet apart, and washing our hands if we if we would just do those three things as north carolinians and and do them for each other yes it's a bit uncomfortable yes it's a bit annoying but um, that's the surest way to slow the spread of this thing and then get back into our classrooms back into football stadiums back into graduation ceremonies that we all so desire we were talking uh, during one of the breaks about the the fact that our buildings obviously we're built for full attendance and so now when we go back uh, to the the classroom uh experience uh, the buildings uh challenges are trying to set up situations where we can have social distancing uh with the with the facilities that we have yes just like um other parts of our education system this uh, pandemic has exposed um some of the uh, limitations of our physical facilities, the, the first is that so many of our schools are already so overcrowded. I mean, they're overcrowded at, at full use. And so, um, you know, if we had school, if we had more physical plant that could uh, spread, spread children out just on a regular basis, we'd be better equipped to, to um, respond to situations like this. And many of our school buildings are, are very old, uh, outdated, and and frankly need replacement um, in order to provide the healthiest uh, uh, heating and air conditioning, uh, air uh, treatment and water and so forth. But beyond that, I would say that our principals and superintendents have been incredibly creative in looking for ways to, um, to abide by the uh, health guidance of wearing masks and six feet apart and avoiding long-term exposure for 15 minutes. You know, if you, can, if you can get at least two of those three in place at any one time, then it's a, it's a layering effect. You can minimize the, um, the spread significantly. So um, the hybrid approach that many of our districts are taking will reduce the number of students in the classroom in order to obtain the six-foot social distancing. They're adjusting schedules so that it minimizes the amount of exchange students have to do in, in crowded hallways and so forth. And, um, and so I, I think it, it will be a, a tremendous challenge to operate our schools this fall, even in that limited capacity. But um, I am confident that our 
uh, our students first, and then teachers and principals um, are up to the challenge. We have about a minute left of this segment. Uh, we mentioned, of course, athletics, but there are a number of other extracurricular activities that are so important, especially on the high school level, such things as the school newspaper and, and uh, the various clubs and organizations. Uh, how much consideration is being given to maintaining that those kinds of activities? Well, I, I think our, I know our principals and superintendents are doing everything they can to continue those activities. I mean, one of the ones that I most enjoy are our, our performing arts in our schools with uh, song, dance, band, those kind of activities. Unfortunately, they are ones that um, require you know performers to have a lot of respiration. Uh, large amount or uh, increases the amount of droplets that are shared and so those are problematic in terms of continuing um to uh in this covid environment and uh, but but other activities such as you mentioned the newspaper um other types of clubs and activities i'm sure we'll look do all we can to look for ways to continue those because they are a critical part of uh, students experience and a critical part of their education Eric Davis is our guest. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education, and we're talking about the reopening of schools. And we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org slash caregiving. That's aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by nfamily Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Eric Davis, who's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. And we're talking about the reopening of schools, a subject that is of uh, vital interest to so many of our listeners, parents, grandparents, and of course the students themselves. A little bit more on the background of Eric Davis. As I said, he is uh, was elected chair in September of 2018, but he had a very interesting background because he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy back in 1983 and uh, is a civil engineer. Uh, so that, that's kind of an interesting, how did you get interested in, in education? Uh, because you went on the Charlotte Board of Education first. Uh, what, uh, 
cause you to get interested in this, uh, this uh, commitment of service to the state? Well, um, I've just uh, personally, my family has so benefited from North Carolina public education system. My mother was a, a uh, school secretary of a K-8 school with about 1,200 students. And um, it just, um, I was just fortunate to have an opportunity to be able to uh, pay back our state and our community um, that has served our family so well. And so I was just delighted to be able to have that opportunity. Eric, uh, one of the things that uh, is, I'm looking sort of ahead, let's assume that uh, maybe as many as 20% uh, of college students elect uh, to take a gap year uh, in their college experience and want to come back next year. Uh, and so that's going to uh, put back uh, a large number of students returning next year. So uh, the concern I've got now is for the high school seniors who are applying for colleges. Let's say that, uh, say, 3,000 students uh, elect to not uh, come back to, say, North Carolina State University this year, but want to come back next year. Uh, so there are going to be 3,000 students there that uh, uh, NC State wasn't ready for, and yet uh, they've got this whole crop of high school seniors making applications. Has anyone looked at that situation and, and uh, what might happen in that regard? Um, I have not been involved in discussions of um, at the university level of how um, our university system will respond to a situation like that, but I do have great faith in, uh, in many of the members of the board of governors that I know, is, is, and in particular with our chancellors at our uh, public universities, as well as our independent colleges and universities. We, we're very fortunate to have a terrific mix of public and private institutions of higher learning. And um, I, would, uh, I would trust their judgment in how best to respond to a situation like that. I, I will share with you, Don, that we're, we're looking for ways, um, given that um, so many of our recent college graduates uh, in this difficult economic circumstances are having uh, much trouble uh, finding employment. We're looking for ways to uh, to tap into their energy and spirit and and enthusiasm, and see if there's ways that they could help us in tutoring, mentoring, and coaching some of our students. So we hope to have more to say on that topic in the near future. Now let's get to money because this is a uh, this is a two-sided sword for sure. We're going to have uh, certain budget restraints because the state of North Carolina requires a balanced budget, and obviously the tax revenues are not going to be as high, so there's going to be a strain there, and then, of course, the extra uh, cost of programs that are necessary because of COVID-19 is stretching that budget. So the school systems uh, are now going to be facing budget problems that they had not anticipated. What do you see happening there, and how are we going to close that gap? Well, you just touched on one of the most severe situations that we face. Many of our school districts were already in a fragile state given uh, uh, historic budget reductions to their finances, and this COVID pandemic has just exacerbated the fragileness of so many of our districts. Uh, in child nutrition, for instance, Many districts have used whatever reserves they had just getting through last spring. Fortunately, our um, 
General Assembly provided uh, uh, significant sums to help us get through that period, and we're grateful for them for that uh, for that support. But on the whole, while acknowledging that our state does face revenue shortfalls, and and those must be addressed, that um, that we really need our districts protected from any uh, decrease in enrollment in the coming year. Uh, the education term is average daily membership. We're advocating that our districts be held harmless from any changes, any decreases, I should say, of ADM in this coming year. Um, we have significant challenges in our exceptional children program. It's very challenging to reach satisfactorily exceptional children through a remote instruction, and that will take additional funding. Uh, continuing child nutrition and feeding of students who are not attending our schools will require additional funding. Um, we're grateful to the General Assembly for and Governor for having provided uh, north of 350 some million in federal money that was made available to our state and, um, and that we've been able to or will soon send to districts. But that's just the beginning. It, this is going to be a much more expensive proposition in the coming years just to um, deal with the health concerns that we need to provide for personal protective equipment, to provide the additional psychologists, nurses, social workers, and counselors needed in our schools, um, to provide just additional resources, period. And at the end of the day, Don, while we're going to advocate for everything we can from our state, and our state does need to step up in a big way, the federal government, with its vast resources, has got to close the gap between falling state revenues and increasing expenditure for education of our children. In, in my view, there is no greater responsibility we have collectively than the education of our children. And that should be our first priority in committing our resources and our time and effort through this pandemic. Broadband uh, keeps coming up and has been coming up now for some time because all sections of the state uh, do not have broadband and that is uh, now uh, becoming a problem as you look at virtual uh, uh, education systems and so forth. And yet now the budget's gonna be constrained and so some of the money that might've gone into expanding the broadband system to areas that did not have it may be delayed. Uh, that's a serious problem also. It is. Um, so broadband access is our generation's version of electrifying North Carolina. Um, that may have been the, the task in the 30s to electrify North Carolina. Our task today is to get broadband to every corner and every community and every dirt road in North Carolina. And while it's an incredibly pressing education issue, it's more than just an education issue. It's an economic development, it's a commerce, it's a quality of life, it's a healthcare issue. And um, if, there, if there's one thing that uh, you know, we could really rally around, it's that our, our quality of life for every one of our families would be enhanced immeasurably if there was universal broadband access, reliable, broadband access to every every student. We, we take it for granted now that in order to have a, a decent home, you got to have certainly water and sewer and electricity. Well, I think broadband is the next utility that needs to be uh, 
delivered to uh, every home in North Carolina. So how many of our counties uh, do not have adequate broadband? And what percentage of the population does this amount to? Yeah, I, I don't have a specific number of, of communities it, uh, off the top of my head, but it uh, it generally equates to somewhere in the order of uh, 25 to 30 percent of our students that were unable to reach uh, through a virtual uh, um, uh, broadband um, channel. We have to reach them in a physical paper pencil packet approach. And the challenges that many of our communities face in the western part of our state is the topography is such that, that it's difficult to get access across mountains and into valleys, whereas in other parts of our state, um, maybe some examples in the eastern part, there are no cell towers. So it doesn't do any good to deliver hotspots on buses to communities. There, there aren't towers to, con to relay the message. So um, it's a variety of situations. I would say that third or a quarter to a third is a good range of, of um, numbers to use for analysis purposes. But there's been many studies conducted on the need for broadband access and the uh, limitations. And, and I'm very grateful for the companies that stepped up in the spring and provided us hotspots and other uh, tools to, uh, on a short-term basis, close the gap. But uh, it's going to take a concerted effort by our state to, uh, to remedy this problem. So you've really got two, two basic plans that you have to uh, look at. One is those uh, in the virtual uh, area. One of those areas that are served by broadband and those areas that are not. So those have to be two separate plans. That's true. Um, to successfully deliver education to uh, a student virtually, you got to have broadband access. You got to have a device that student knows how to use and is comfortable manipulating. And then you got to have the curriculum and instruction delivered in a way that is effective for the student. So you got to have those three components, and we are in short supply of of all three. Um, any one of those three creates the gap. Um, again, I commend our teachers and staff who have built more virtual curriculum and materials over the summer to help close that gap. Uh, appreciate the companies that have devoted and the public funding that has gone towards uh, procuring additional devices. But, you know, those devices have to be replaced on a regular basis because they wear out or have other issues. And then, uh, and then there's the broadband access. Eric Davis is our guest. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education, a uh, board that has been uh, working at very hard at finding solutions to the challenges of reopening our school systems and educating our K through 12 students. We'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers and uh, Eric Davis right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. She just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. 
If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. (coughs) To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Eric Davis is our guest. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. We've been talking about reopening schools. A reminder to those of you who are listening to the half-hour version of this program, there are two segments that you don't hear, but they are available on carolinanewsmakers.com. And and Eric covered a lot of very interesting topics. And so if you'd like to hear those two segments, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do the same thing, carolinanewsmakers.com. Well, uh, Eric, we, this has been very enlightening, and, and uh, obviously the, the State Board of Education is working very hard to see that the schools are reopened safely and wisely and that we continue the course of educating our kids. I, I, I guess I'd probably start this segment off by just saying, what are your, say, your top five concerns right now, and, and uh, what do you think is going to happen in the immediate future? Well, I'm mostly concerned with uh, making sure that we provide the personal protective equipment in our schools to keep um, our teachers, staff, and students safe. I'm concerned that we find the right balance on um, caring for teachers and members of our staff who their personal health leads them to be vulnerable or caring for vulnerable family members balanced with the need to have teachers and staff in our schools. Um, I worry about feeding our children. Um, So many of our children rely on us for those nutritious meals. Um, I worry about our district finances and the importance of holding them harmless due to decreasing enrollment. And and frankly, I worry about um, our ability to close the uh, education gaps that have been exacerbated by this pandemic. But despite all those worries, I am incredibly optimistic. I am confident 
and have great faith in our fellow North Carolinians that, um, that this generation can rise to the challenge just as previous generations have, and that we do our best work in challenging times like we're in now. And I'm confident that we'll look back some point in the future and say with admiration and say, boy, we got the job done for the benefit of our children and the future of North Carolina. Well, so many of the issues that were uh, high on your list prior to COVID-19, things like standardized testing and uh, graduation rates and uh, the performance of schools and school districts and the retaining and uh, recruiting of school teachers, all these things are still on the plate. And so how do you balance this off between worrying about the immediate concerns and then not forgetting that we've still got these same problems or opportunities, uh, as, as some of them are, to, uh, uh, to the whole field of education? Well, I think like... Um like any good organization, you have to deal with the urgent and then you have to deal with the important. And while each day seems to be consumed with uh, COVID-19, I'm really uh, proud of my colleagues on the board and the, the teamwork they have with the Department of Public Instruction, particularly in developing our strategic plan. We recently um, discussed a uh, framework for action for that strategic plan, which includes a uh, intense focus on equity and eradication of racism in our system. And so despite the uh, urgent cares of today, we're focused on the long term and will continue to do so. We've got a great effort focused on uh, K3 literacy and I'm appreciative to uh, Ann Clark and Crystal Hill for leading that effort. Um, and so we are balancing uh, the needs to deal with COVID as well. And uh, interestingly, as you have pointed out throughout the broadcast, there are so many of these decisions that have to be localized, and the local school boards and local educators are the ones that are going to set the policies basically for each individual school district and each individual set of circumstances. And uh, that's just, uh, just a fact. I mean, there's, there's no getting around the fact that every set of circumstances is somewhat different. Yeah, that's true. I mean, our system is is set up based on uh, on local school districts, and and while the state board is enshrined in our uh, constitution from 1868, the fact of the matter is that we exist to support our local districts and charter schools in delivering education to to our children. And I just hold our superintendents and local leaders in the highest regard. They are our frontline. Um, professionals that uh, make the tough decisions every day and yet at the same time are, are the ones that our children remember for a lifetime because they make such a lasting impact. So right now is it looks like we're going to have sort of a combination, a hybrid system of virtual education and in-classroom instruction in most districts and of course as you've said time and time again staying in touch and having a personal contact with each student is going to be so important. Absolutely. I'd, I'd say it this way, Don. I think our, our districts and charter schools are at varying stages based on the um, conditions in their communities of progressing along the journey to full return to schools. Some are beginning that next phase of our journey in a, in a remote, full virtual fashion. Others are doing it in a hybrid fashion, and there's varying degrees of uh, mixture between those two. But, but we're all focused 
on the objective of as soon as we can get the virus under control, as soon as we can move things uh, safely forward in a, in a careful and thoughtful and measured way to get our students back in the classroom, to get our um, young uh, athletes back on the field or on the court, back in the band rooms, uh, back in chorus, back in graduation ceremonies, back to where we want to be. And the best way we can do that is by wearing masks, washing hands, and staying six feet apart. Got about 30 seconds left, uh, uh, well, a little bit longer than that, maybe 45 seconds. And so what message would you give to parents right now? What, uh, what if you could take, talk to parents face-to-face, -face, what would you say? First, I'd thank them for the opportunity to educate their children. There is no greater gift that we're given and nothing that we worry about more nor love more than, than our children. And I feel a great debt of gratitude to every parent in North Carolina for that opportunity. Um, I so appreciate when parents share their concerns and their fears and their aspirations. And my colleagues and I on the state board uh, take those to heart in every decision that we make and we attempt as best in our poor judgment to be able to do what's best for our students, recognizing that there's a variety of needs across our state. And so we're going to be focused on uh, caring for your child and every child across our state. Absolutely perfect timing. I think I'm going to give you a job in broadcasting because you've left with just enough time to remind folks that if they'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or the two segments they might have missed, um, then they can go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another guest for us again next week on the same group of stations across North Carolina. And so until next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.